You're listening to the On Her Majesty's Secret Podcast production of The Digital 007, a look back at James Bond in video games. the 90s hello and welcome to the digital 007 a look back at james bond in video games of course brought to you by on her majesty's secret podcast and our fine patreon sponsors i'm jared albrecht the yard sale artist aka death probe and i will be taking you through this journey through the decades to look at all the various incarnations of james bond in video games let me tell you how this is generally going to work I will give you some basic information on each game, and we're more interested in hearing from people who have played the games along the way. So wherever possible, I was out there hitting those internets, finding our listeners, our friends, people who rally around the show over at Twitter at OHMSPod, and I'm catching these folks and I'm talking to them about their James Bond video game experiences. So there's going to be a lot of that thrown in here. We're really just going to be looking at the fun facts, going through the timeline, and getting those interesting experiences from our very listeners. This has been an absolute blast to put together, so let me not waste any more time and get straight to our first game. Welcome to 1990. Even though 1990 would start a long drought in the realm of James Bond cinema, it would actually offer up two new James Bond games in the realm of video games. The first one we will discuss is 1990's James Bond, The Spy Who Loved Me. If you listened to the last episode, you'll know that Domark was holding the James Bond license for video games at this time. They had acquired it in 1985 with a view to a kill. And by 1990, they were no longer pressured to sync up a video game release with a film, so they were able to open up the James Bond library to their video game adventures. And they chose The Spy Who Loved Me. It was available on the Amiga, the Atari ST, the Amstrad CPC, the Commodore 64, DOS systems, the Sega Master System, and of course, the ZX Spectrum. It was a top-down vehicle shooter. If you listened to the last episode, you'll also know that in the realm of James Bond-ish games, people were quite enjoying the game Spy Hunter, both in the arcade and on the Nintendo Entertainment System. And I believe that Domark saw that and decided, well, why not make it an official James Bond game? Because The Spy Who Loved Me plays very much like Spy Hunter. And with that, let's get to our first interview. The Wizard of Ice has returned one more time to let us know what it was like gaming in 1990, The Spy Who Loved Me, on his ZX Spectrum. So we get off the Spy Love Me, which is probably the one I least remember because I'm, I think by this stage I was getting older. 
I'd say it wasn't the biggest thrill. I was only 15, so you still think it would be exciting. But I think at this stage, I was quite into the books and quite in a sort of pretentious, studenty, snobby, if it's not Fleming, I'm not interested, sort of, I'm a hardcore, serious Bond fan. You know, I can't be doing this frivolities like JW. This is, a, this is a heresy. Whereas, obviously, now I can embrace the awfulness of JW and live with it. But back then, it was, a, it was an affront to my fledgling Fleming sensibility. <laughs> I don't think I felt the need to rush out and buy it, should we say, for opening day. Probably I said another money, you know. Yeah, I'm just suddenly got to save, and at the time, 15 quid's quite a decent chunk of your money. I think I was getting like a pound or two pound a week pocket money. So to actually save up to buy a bomb game, if it wasn't a birthday or Christmas, you were investing sizably. So it couldn't be done willy-nilly. Uh, the box on this, again, hand-drawn. I don't know if the posters cost more to use. Then just get a commission of guys to draw it. Not bad. Um, I think it's that Rog and Anya, standing some sort of gunpo, as usual. Rog and Anya quite well-drawn. And maybe some generic explosions, possibly Lotus in the sub-mode and stuff like that. I don't think Jaws is in the cover. No fun on the back this time. A bit more serious. Yeah, the back was just a lot of screenshots, and notably a lot of screenshots from computers that were better than mine. Because by this stage, I had the Amiga. I think there's another one. Was it Atari? There were two big names. I think it was Amiga and Atari, which were the next level up in terms of graphical and power. And it looks bloody good on that. On those computers, the screenshots I've seen on those computers looks good. Looks for the time, obviously. This game looks pretty tasty. Doesn't look so tasty on mine, to say the least. Again, we can't the same all the time. You're driving up the screen this time. Whereas in Living that living Die, you're behind the boat, going forwards. So same last to kill, top down. And you're driving up the screen in the Lotus. So you start off in the Lotus on land, drive along, and you sky shoot at you. I think it's a day of cars. You, you shoot, you take them out of the missile or something like that. It's like a cute truck, and you can drive into the back like Knight Rider, which sounds exciting, but you just crash into the back of it, and then the sprites overlay to the QC. So, yeah, it sounds like it sounds thrilling, but it's not particularly that good. Um, and then you get an option to get the upgrades, which missiles or I think it's a laser. It's different weapons you can buy, you can upgrade to in the back of the queue if you've got enough points or something. Don't remember that being particularly thrilling, but that's how you get your different weapons. And then you go back on the road and you shoot some more people until you run out of stuff and another queue truck comes. The mechanics of living let down, the physics are pretty good, pretty fluid. And the mechanics of this are a bit lesser. It's a bit sticky or clunky. It doesn't feel not very intuitive. You don't feel the sort of fluidity like you do with living let die. So I guess it's a bit the downer on that respect. Let's see, I have a first level on the road. I think you just stop at some point randomly, but it's supposed to be the hotel, I don't know. And I think there's a boat level where you're in a boat. I think it must be some sort of pseudo, you go to Atlantis with Naomi in the boat, but people are shooting at you for some reason, so it's a bit harsh, given that you haven't actually met Stromberg yet. So you do that level on the water, which is just a speedboat. But I mean, it's the same stuff, you just got a different shaped sprite as the vehicle. So the vehicle's a boat, and this time it shoots. Oh, it's a boat, and it shoots. But it's the same, everything's the same, the mechanics. and you have different, right, You're shooting boats instead of cars, but then you get back on the road, so I guess that is the bit where you come back and Jaws is chasing you. Although Jaws doesn't chase you, they're just generic baddies in cars and whatever. So just guys in cars, you shoot them and kill them, and eventually you do that enough, and then you get to the pier, and then this is the big money shot you're getting excited for. I'm going to drive off the pier into the water, obviously. This is, this is it. And it's going to turn into the sub. No, in this game, you get all excited, floor it down the pier, and the game just takes over and pulls you to a gentle halt at the end of the pier, and that's the end of the level. And you're like, well, no, that's not really acceptable, is it? <laughs> this, that's the thing that pisses me off. I don't mind, because there's later levels in this game where you've got Jaws to fight, which are totally different graphics and stuff like that. It's totally it's almost a sub-game, but that's only on the Atari. The Amstrad hasn't got power to do that. So, I can, okay, I can live with that. There's extra little levels that people with better computers can do. All right, fair enough. I'm, that's me. Again, I'm not middle class anymore. I've got the cheap the Amstrad from the 80s. 
but don't just stop my Lotus at the end of the pier. For no, there's no reason. Just keep it driving. It's not difficult. Just keep it driving into the water. The next level is the Lotus in the water, for Christ's sake. It's the same sprite of the Lotus, just with little fins on, because it's the sub, and that's in the water. So I've got the Lotus here and the water there, and the, the computer doesn't know the difference between you. You're the bloke animating it. This Lotus just drives in, just drive it into the f***ing water. But they don't do that. You stop at the end of the pier, and that's the end of the level. And the next level, you're in the sub, and no explanation how you got there. So that's my one big memory of that. It's a little moment, but come on. Come up with a reason like, oh, well, you need rooms full of processes to render that. That's, that's way too hard. No, because it's just the same thing. You just you drive, road to sea, road to sea. The computer doesn't know the difference. And so, yeah, so I'm not sure that colours my whole thinking of the game, but it's, it's a big annoyance. So then you're in the sub anyway. The same low, it's a little set of square loads. It's exactly the same with pre but it's got little four little fins on the side. And you shoot and you take out some scuba guys and you take out some guys in little, little underwater little sled things. Let you do that for a bit. I think for me that might be it, because I've got the shit version. <laughs> oh my goodness, the Wizard of Ice cracks me up every time. Well, with that rather humorous look back at The Spy Who Loved Me by Domark in 1990, let's move on to the second game that was released in 1990. The game was called James Bond 007 The Stealth Affair. It was made by Interplay, and it was available on the Amiga, the Atari ST, and the MS-DOS. It is a point-and-click adventure game made specifically for computer systems. This one's a little bit interesting because it was originally released in Europe as Operation Stealth, and then it got some licensing issues worked out and was able to rebrand itself as a James Bond game. So they went in and they just changed some text in the game to basically put a James Bond wrapper around it. Nothing fundamentally changed about the game. If you have Operation Stealth, as it was originally made, and you have the Stealth Affair, the James Bond version, you will not notice any significant difference other than in the text. Even then, they didn't have the time to get the text updated perfectly. So in the James Bond adventure, the Stealth Affair, he still works for the American CIA instead of the British Secret Service. It's really just a quick repaint to make it into a James Bond game. With that said, let's talk to Pat Sampson, a host from the Longbox Crusade and one of the co-hosts here for On Her Majesty's Secret Podcast. So I remember getting the Stealth Affair. It was me and my friend. He's a big computer buddy of mine, Glenn. We've had on the Longbox Crusade a long time ago. We were both into computer games, and so we would go up to Appleton, which is about 40 minutes away drive. So we'd have to drive to get to a decent computer place that would have, you know, like, I don't know if it was EB Games. Hey, guys. Welcome to EB Games. You'd go on the wall, and it'd be like you have all the box art there, and just look at all these cool games, and you go, oh, man, those are some really sweet covers and cool games. So I remember we were looking around for a game. I saw that one. I'm like, ah, maybe I'll give this one a try. It was the James Bond Stealth Affair with the red box. And to this day, I remember that cover. It stood out to me. And I'm like, ah, I like, you know, I like a role-playing kind of a game. 
So I like some strategy a little bit. So that's why I kind of picked that game up. And I remember playing it, but it was really tough to do, tough to play. And I didn't have a computer in 1990. My dad had one. And so when he would go to work at third shift, so 10 o'clock at night, he'd be gone. I'd be up either playing my Indiana Jones games that I got as well, too, from back then. They were on the floppy, and so was the Stealth Affair was on floppy disk. Three and a half. It wasn't on the five and a quarter. But I put that into the old uh, IBM machine there and play it. I just remember, man, it was a tough game. But really cool sound effects. I totally wish I could find it again and play it. And that will close out 1990, where we had two games released. And next up, we'll move into 1991. In 1991, we're still in the middle of the James Bond movie drought. No new movies on the horizon for the foreseeable future. But 1991, much like 1990, blesses us with two game releases. Sort of. I say sort of because the game that was released was based off of the now popular animation show, James Bond Jr. James Bond Jr. secret mission, but scum is ready. Walker the plank hooks IQ. Jaws is having a snack. Odd job is flipping his lid. But IQ packs a punch and James Bond Jr. dives into action. Mission accomplished. James Bond Jr. figures and vehicles sold separately. In 1991, THQ released James Bond Jr. video games. One for the regular 8-bit Nintendo Entertainment System, the other for the more powerful 16-bit Super Nintendo Entertainment System. They're both side-scrolling adventures but they're very different games. The Super Nintendo version is not just a basic graphic and audio upgrade of the regular Nintendo version. They are two completely separate different games with different layouts, and the Super Nintendo one even includes vehicle levels that the regular Nintendo one doesn't. They are alike in almost no way except for the fact they're both action platformers. So let's start with the 8-bit Nintendo version, and let's have a talk with Aaron Bossig from the Hungry Trilobite Podcast and his thoughts on the 8-bit original Nintendo, James Bond Jr. I came into James Bond Jr. picking up the cartridge for a couple of bucks during an internet sale at some point in the 2000s when I was buying a lot of NES games. And honestly, it's weird that I didn't get into it before because I loved NES games since the NES was new. I've always liked James Bond. The concept of James Bond Jr. confused me a little bit, mostly because he was James Bond's nephew. And I thought, gee, why don't they want him to be James Bond's son? Nobody would have any questions as James Bond having a son. That's something we'd find very plausible. But let's just let that go for a minute. James Bond Jr. on the NES was released by a company called THQ, and you need to understand THQ to understand this game. THQ, in that point in time, earned their bread and butter by licensing very popular properties and making video games out of them. The games, for the most part, were very bad. I'll be honest with you. They were not good. They had all sorts of problems, ranging from... Poor design, poor play, poor hit detection. They were always the bottom of the barrel, but they were pretty. Whatever money THQ spent on these games always went into the graphics and the music. 
the things that would get your attention when you walk by them in a store, that's what they spent their money on. And it shows James Bond Jr. is no exception. You play this game. The first thing you're going to see is that it's got a lot of fantastic large pixel art, some large character designs. It's got some amazing parallax scrolling, which is something that you didn't really see commonplace until the Super Nintendo came out. So on a technical level, it succeeds on that level. And I'll be honest with you, the game is actually the best THQ game I've ever played. That's not a high bar to set, but it is a competent side scroller that nudges on being, I want to say pretty good, decent, the higher end of decent. You're going to get in there and you've got decenter, (laughs) decenter is not really a word, but It's better than it would have been on some of the other THQ games you would have played from only a year or two earlier, like Rocky and Bullwinkle, like Ren and Stimpy, all those other games. The game was almost unplayable because the jumping was off or the hit detection was off. You were constantly getting sucker punched by enemies who had far more power than you do. And James Bond Jr. doesn't completely avoid those pitfalls, but at least... When you're starting off on that first level and you realize you fall into the pit and you can't jump back out of the pit, you have a reasonable chance of going back with your next life and saying, okay, maybe I can avoid that pit this time. I can learn from my mistakes. There were so many other CHQ games where you never learned how to make that jump because it just required that pixel perfect skill that honestly, the game wasn't fun enough for you to actually enjoy playing. You didn't want to practice it that much because you got to that stage and it's like, I get sucker punched by the same log over and over again. I'm just not going to play anymore. With James Bond Jr., you start to learn the enemy's patterns. You start to learn how you're getting from point A to point B. The game is just fun enough that you actually can practice and get better. And that's more than I could say for any other THQ game. As far as the story goes, this is another area where THQ wasn't totally terrible. The stories behind the games were always in tune with one of the better installments of whatever property they licensed, be that, you know, Red and Stimpy, Rocky and Bullwinkle, Where's Waldo? Everything made sense. And the story for James Bond Jr. takes much the same path. The stages all match what a Saturday morning cartoon about a spy would match in theme, in tone. It works pretty well. Is it the best James Bond game ever? I'm not going to even suggest that, but. It's a decent Nintendo game. It's not the worst you could put on your shelf. You're going to have a good time with it. If I have to point out one area where the game does start to get frustrating, where the THQ mark doesn't completely leave it. On most games, if you push the up button on a platformer, you're going to go up a ladder or through a door if you're in front of a ladder or a door. If you're not, the game does nothing. But on this game, for whatever reason, if you push the up button, your character turns away from the screen and puts his back to you. So it's like the up button is like a take a leak button because that's what it looks like James Bond Jr. does. This seems like a nothing deal, but that often interferes with doing a jump, interferes with avoiding enemies. And it's the kind of thing where you say, whoever made this game did not think of this. They didn't play through it enough to realize that that accidental up button push is a deal breaker if it actually does something when you don't want it to. So I would definitely say that it's the best THQ game I've ever played. It is a middling platformer overall for the NES. Thank you, Aaron, for that excellent review of James Bond Jr. on the Nintendo Entertainment System.
As I stated before, THQ released two versions of James Bond Jr. in 1991. The other one was on the Super Nintendo 16-bit system. And for that, I have SCXCR from YouTube's $5 Gamer Show. He's going to weigh in on the Super Nintendo version of James Bond Jr. I found the game at a place called Super Game Team. It's this really small, locally owned trade-in store that just specializes in old video game stuff. I go there a lot when I'm looking for like more obscure retro games and what have you. So I started combing through them and I eventually found a copy of James Bond Jr. on the SNES. It was super cheap. I think it was like $2 or less. So I figured this is pretty low risk. I'll just get it, play it, see what I think. I decided I was going to do the episode before I played the game. That's how I always do it. And I played through it and I thought, oh man, that was rough. (laughs) My first exposure to the game was seeing the name Gray Matter in the credits that pop up during the title screen. So I got this wrong at the time, but Gray Matter. There were two different game companies called Gray Matter around at that time. The one that made this game was a Canadian game developer, which apparently at one point was the largest game development studio in Canada. They're dead now, but they had a history. I just combed through the list of games that they made, and there are some really terrible games on here. Like they did NES Dirty Carry, Phoenix 3 on the 3DO, Crow City of Angels. It's not good. So I started playing James Bond Jr. I got to this one. It's technically the first level, but it's kind of a non-level where all you do is like jump up a couple platforms, see the bad guy. He flies away. Oh, I should probably say how the game plays. So (laughs) it's like a platformer sort of with like some action elements to it. You can shoot, you can punch, you can kick. Well, you can shoot if you have ammo, which isn't always the case. And then there are these side-scrolling shoot-em-up sections where you're in a a helicopter or a jet fighter. My experience with those wasn't particularly good. There's this frequent problem with the game where what you can see on screen is uh, not what's actually appeared. Enemies will appear maybe half a screen over, and then they'll start attacking you. And because they're off screen, there's nothing you can do to attack them. So most of my playthrough was me getting shot from off screen and dying. And um, there are also like things that crawl on the ground that attack you, like snakes in particular. The game really loves snakes for some reason. You have absolutely nothing you can do about them except lob grenades at them, which weirdly enough, they made the Dirty Harry NES game and that's how you killed them there too. I don't know if that's just something Gray Matter has against snakes, but anyway, my main issue with the game was the way it controlled. Jumping was floaty, but you could kind of get used to that. I always found it weird that James Bond Jr.'s punch had more range than his kick, which, if you know anything about biology, really doesn't make much sense. There was like a roll you could do to get under things or dodge projectiles. But the thing is, it was assigned to down and forward, which you can accidentally hit just whenever. So a bunch of my deaths in the game were me rolling into an enemy, taking damage, and then just dying. The uh, shoot 'em up sequences, 
they don't have the option where you can just hold down the button and you'll automatically fire. So you have to keep mashing the fire button for like several minutes at a time. And then I had one toward the end that just glitched out on me. I died, respawned, and then no enemies appeared. I was just stuck in fighter jet purgatory where I would never actually reach the scum base. So I had to shut off the game, look up a password because I wasn't looking up passwords for this, and then um, get back to close to where I was. Another thing I found weird was they only could do so much with the game. So a bunch of the cast from the TV show was cut. In the TV show, you had people like Goldfinger, his daughter, Dr. No, and then a bunch of other characters like Walker D. Plank, who's (laughs) this weird pirate guy. (laughs) They cut two-thirds of the cast from the show, including some of the people who help James, which, as someone who watched the show, was kind of off-putting to me because it seemed like you were just fighting the same thing over and over. It was basically Dr. Derange and uh, Scumlord, and then I think Skullcap appeared at some point, and that was pretty much it. I do have one positive I take away from this game, which is um, a glitch that you can trigger on the first level. And this is just kind of fascinating from a programming standpoint, because the way it's supposed to work is you approach Dr. Derange, he runs away, and then you start the next level. But if you roll backward in a certain way, you can cause him to disappear, and then that level just never ends, which sounds bad, except you can walk off the edge of the stage and then just fall into this garbled mess of programming and sprites. It's never quite the same every time you do it. So I just occasionally go back and see what I can get to happen. Like, I'll find items that never appeared during the game proper. I actually found this, like, thermal vest item, which is supposed to appear during the last stage. IQ even tells you about the item, and then it just never shows up. But they did programming into the game, and it, like, changes the way his character sprite works. I just find that kind of stuff fascinating. But what usually happens is I'll die for no reason... Or I'll get stuck between two walls and not be able to move anywhere. One time I got James stuck in an infinite rolling animation. (laughs) Oh, geez. I actually will like bring this to friends' houses sometimes because some of my friends have SNESs too. And I'll just give them the game and see, here, see what you can get to have happen. And one of them, I will never forget this. He managed to die in midair. Now, usually when James dies in midair, he falls to the ground and then does his death animation. But he managed to get it so that the floor never reappeared. So James is just falling infinitely. And then all of a sudden the screen blacks out and he skips forward two stages. It's a little buggy. There's another bug you can do during any level that has a ladder and a moving platform. Where if you climb down as the moving platform is going, James will still be in the climbing animation, but he'll just be doing it on the wall. Just wherever the platform deposits him. I mean, I don't think I would recommend it as a casual game, but if you're looking for like doing the weird glitches, which like you don't even need to progress in the game at all to be able to do most of them, then it's absolutely worth your time. I have one video on my channel, which is just half an hour of triggering the glitch over and over and over and seeing what happens. I still have fun going back to this now and then. heard it straight from SCXCR, ladies and gentlemen. If you are a video game bug hunter and that you like the glitchy games and the things you can do with it, well then, James Bond Jr. on the Super Nintendo is for you. 
And in case you couldn't tell, my buddy SCXCR was a bit of a James Bond Jr. fan, and he asked if he could just get about 30 seconds to talk about the show and its ending, and I thought, why not? So not video game related, but a quick check-in with SCXCR and his final thoughts on the James Bond Jr. cartoon. As someone who watched the show back then, I was kind of sad that it didn't really have any sort of conclusion. It just ended like any other episode would. I think it was the episode where Walk D. Plank got Thor's hammer. And, <laughs> you know, when I say that out loud, it sounds ridiculous. But um, I was hoping for, like, some kind of conclusion with, like, Scum and Scum Lord and something like that. But there were, like, 60-something episodes of it. So you can still go back to it now and then and, like... Find a fun little diversion from it. Around the world. And that, ladies and gentlemen, will take us to the end of James Bond's nephew, James Bond Jr. in video games. It'll also take us to the end of 1991. We're going to skip over 1992, since nothing of James Bond importance happened on that year in the realm of video games, but the next video game would come out in 1993. Nineteen ninety-three would give us a little game called James Bond: The Duel. It was available on the Sega Genesis, known as the Mega Drive, in Europe. It was also available on the Master System and the Game Gear. This would be Domark's final 007 game. After this, the company Domark would get absorbed into the video game company Idos, which, if you know your games well, you know they would eventually be part of the gaming company that would give us Lara Croft and Tomb Raider. But this was Domark's last official licensed game. Previously, in this documentary, we've seen Domark release several games. They held the license since 1985, and here in 1993, they're going to release James Bond The Duel. But this would be the first time they ever did one for a mass-market console system like the Sega Genesis. James Bond The Duel was a side-scrolling action game. It included fan-favorite James Bond villains like Jaws, Objob, Baron Samity, even though he's called Bones in the game for some reason, and Mayday, who is called Yo-Yo in the game for some reason. I'm sure it's rights issues. The game actually centers around a fairly clever plot if you read the manual. It's one of those games where back in the day you had to read the manual to fully understand the game that you were playing. The plot is pretty good in that James Bond isn't fighting officially Jaws or Odd Job or any of the previously mentioned villains, but this new villain has learned cloning technology and is cloning James Bond's greatest foes. Not a bad storyline, but you had to read the manual to get there. Most interesting is that this is Timothy Dalton's last official appearance as James Bond. Timothy Dalton lends his face to the cover art for this video game, and it would be his last official appearance as 007. Timothy Dalton didn't get enough films nor enough games, in my opinion. But hey, it's not about my opinions. Let's talk to John from Twitter's at NotPerfectedYet. So first seeing The Duel was uh, on the shelves in a store called Woolworths, which anyone from the UK will remember, which was a great shop for literally buying just anything you wanted. It was sat there in the new releases of computer games, and it was priced up as £39.99 which was the marketing ploy that was always used to sell computer games being it's a penny less than being £40, but it looks like it's in the 30s, so it's cheaper when it's not. 
And I would have saved up my money to get that game over several weeks because it was James Bond and James Bond was the thing that I wanted. I was really into it at this point as a child. Back then, we had James Bond Jr. come and go at this point, And now this game had come out to an 11-year-old child who didn't know anything about legal disputes going on with film companies. As far as we knew, it was business as usual. James Bond was still there. Timothy Dalton was still James Bond. And this was the new computer game that he was in. So completely oblivious to anything legal that was going on. But I was happy just to be playing as James Bond on a Mega Drive. So you'll notice the first thing when you put the game on, start her up. Unlike modern games, there are no cutscenes to explain the plot at all. If you need to know what's going on in the plot, you go to the instruction manual and there is a explanation of the outline of the plot and a level-by-level description of what the level is going to be like and what you will come up against. And the plot of the duel revolves around Professor Gravemar, who is invented purely for this game, is not a Bond villain from books or films, and he's never seen in the game whatsoever, so he might as well not exist. Professor Gravemar is planning to launch satellites into the atmosphere to take over the world. That's as detailed as the plot goes. And he's taken over an island, which you'll infiltrate throughout five levels. And the obstacles you'll go up against include cloned henchmen from the James Bond series, which we have no idea how he's been able to clone the dead henchmen of the past. Interestingly, you've got four henchmen you'll go up against. You have Jaws. You have odd job, but then you will have Bones, who is clearly Baron Samity, and you will have Yo-Yo, who again is clearly Mayday. And it's never explained why they couldn't use the names. And it feels very odd just to run over the description in the manual and act like they had different names all along. And as far as I even remember back, reviews of the game always referred to them as Baron Samity and Mayday. So it's not like they were fooling anyone. When you started playing, it was fairly simple gameplay, side-scrolling platform shooter. The objectives you had was to move throughout the level, shoot the bad guys, rescue hostages that were always blonde women. And at the end of a level, you'd have to set a bomb after defeating the boss that you would come up against and then escape the level. The first level, you would have had a luxury yacht. The second level was a woodland base that had a reactor in it. The third level was an underground cavern, and the fourth level was a rocket pad. And the fifth level, it wasn't so much a level, really. It was more of a final boss. You would come up against Jaws again, but he's in a giant submarine contraption that attacked you with mechanical arms and grenades. In terms of gameplay, it's fairly simple. Walk to one side, jump and shoot. It's very bizarre jump that you can now have James Bond in a tuxedo do 12-foot somersault flips. You'd have to be jumping up and down between things. The jumping mechanisms on the game were fairly clunky. You would uh, literally jump if you caught the edge of a platform and you fell, that's it, you're dead. Just literally missing out by a whisker. In terms of the bosses... It wasn't so much of a question of how difficult were they defeat. You just had to have the experience to know exactly where to stand to shoot them so they couldn't do anything to you. Not very difficult at all. In fact, I remember first working out how to fight Mayday. You'd go up to the platform that she was on and she would be flying, kicking you and wouldn't have any idea what to do. 
And then one day I just worked out if I stood on the platform below and just fired up at her and shot her as she stood there, she'd be defeated without any effort whatsoever. Funny enough, the game being at a time when Timothy Dalton was technically still James Bond and his face being on not only the packaging, but also the menu screen, it's very odd that the fact the entire game has a real Roger Moore feel to it. Everything about it is huge and grandiose and silly and over the top. And even on the third level, the henchmen are all in the yellow Drax outfits from Moonraker. It wasn't the most taxing game to play. It was still very, very enjoyable. If anything, it'd be slightly frustrating from time to time. Jump mechanics would be tricky. You would find enemies would just materialize out of nowhere and shoot you. And with only five shots to take before you lose a life, that became a bit troublesome. So you'd find yourself kind of just running down a corridor, firing just on the off chance that someone should appear. On the whole, it was a really enjoyable game because back then we didn't have much and that was the closest we had. We'd gone from having games on the Spectrum and GoldenEye on the N64 was nowhere near on the horizon at this point. So you pretty much took what you can get. And it was a pretty enough game with entertaining enough levels that killed enough time for you and it was enjoyable i think john from at not perfected yet over on twitter makes an excellent point this was how we stayed in touch with james bond circa 1993 in the middle of our movie drought and sometimes when you make audio documentaries like this you get two interviews and both are so good you don't know which one to use and well you just use both of them so let's take another look at james bond the duel this time from the perspective of Chris from Instagram's British Bond Addict account. The first time playing The Jewel um, is actually my godfather's game. Uh, he picked up a Sega Mega Drive, as we call it in the UK. He got three games. He got Sonic the Hedgehog, an Indiana Jones game, and a James Bond game. Of course, like the first thing we went over, I think, one time, and he's like, oh, look, there's Sonic the Hedgehog. And I was like, yeah, great. This is brilliant. Um, I think I was about five or six at the time. So I think just the idea of playing on a games console was like mind-blowing. I played Sonic for quite a bit, but then I realized there's like some other games and I peeked into it. And I didn't know who this Indiana James guy was, never heard of him. So I went on to the James Bond one. And my dad is like a chronic Bond film watcher. And I, I'm going to blame him for why I'm like I am now. And it would be every weekend. It'd usually be Goldfinger because that's his favorite, but he'd always go through them. And I'd just pick up on it when I was younger. And it got to a stage like, you know, you'd walk around, you'd sing in the Bond theme to yourself, all that sort of thing. And it's like, it's weird. In Britain at that time, James Bond was actually quite a kid-friendly thing, coming off the back of Roger Moore, Timothy Dalton, which is a bit darker, and then starting off with Pierce. There's lots of kid-based stuff for it. So I had loads of all the toys, all the action figures, all the cars, and, you know, wanting to be James Bond. But then, of course, there's a video game about it. And plugged it in, and of course, it's got the James Bond music straight away. It's not dated particularly well. It's a very sort of patchy one. And then it boots up with this really weird interpretation of Timothy Dalton's face. You look at it and it's <laughs> it's quite bizarre. It's going a bit pretty boy in some instances. There's a bit of Roger Moore in there. There's a bit of Timothy Dalton. But to be fair, I was young. It was big on a screen in front of me. And I was like, yes, let's do it. I'm in. And it kicks off and you go onto a boat. You're in a tuxedo for some reason. And the objective is to save women. And of course, when you're younger, the stereotypes are something that will stand out the most. And you're like, this is James Bond. And I remember playing it and my dad was watching it at the same time as my godfather. You go through the first level, quite difficult. Like you, I kept falling into the sea at some point, not knowing you meant to progress by going through the sea, but whatever. 
you go around, you find some women, they do the first part of the YMCA dance and go, yay, every time you save them. <laughs> I'm all fine, I'm having fun, I'm shooting, the, the, the sound effects sound right, the music's quite catchy. And then the biggest moment comes towards the end of the level where there's this big beefy guy with a white shirt and suspenders, braces. And my dad goes, oh, that's Jaws, it's him. <laughs> and of course, I didn't really know the character at that point. So I was going, sure, dad, fine. But for him, that was actually quite a big moment, bizarrely. Overall, my experiences with the duel from there, we go see my godparents every couple of months or so, and I'd always ask, oh, can I play the duel? Can I play the duel? And they go, yeah, sure. And every time I'd always get a little bit further. On reflection, it's really not a long game, but having not played many video games up to that point, it was quite tricky. And I still think the Mega Drive controller is not a particularly good one. Like having three face buttons and at the time with six-year-old thumbs wasn't particularly great. So yeah, I played through it quite a bit. I always got stuck on the wood level because I'd always fall to my death every single time. I think at one point I got to the um, start of the volcano level and right towards the end. And I was so excited about it that I just instantly mucked up straight away, like choked it completely. I always did find it interesting, though, at the end of every level, the bad guys were good enough to put neon signs saying exit, just so you knew where to go. <laughs> like, it is interesting. I think overall, if reflecting on it today, it's it's quite basic. It's do this in three different, lo- four different locations, I think, maybe five, a few different locations. But it was quite good fun. It's score based at the end, obviously. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. I went back to it again at university, but I didn't know that you could emulate those sorts of games quite so easily as you could. So I picked up with a couple of friends for one uni night and we just played a night of going through it together. They'd never played it, but I was going, oh, look, you want to go left here? Watch out, there's going to be a submarine drop on you. What, a submarine drop on you? Boom. So <laughs> we did that and we, we got through it, actually. And the difficulty, I think, was me being experienced with games when I was younger. The controls weren't too bad. The physics were okay. I mean, when he jumps, he dips quite quickly, which isn't too bad. I found out you can duck and hide and cover, which I didn't know you could do the first time I played it. And it just became like a one-night thing. We just did it. We had a game over a few times to switch, go back again. And it's kind of very bookended. It's quite nice, actually. Um, I've, I've been trying to revisit it again, but I kind of actually want to, you know, actually buy the original, get a Mega Drive, get the console and do it like that. I think my overriding memory of the duel is when my fun time had to stop my godparents because I had to socialise. Often I'll be sitting there listening to their stories of their very important work and I'll just be looking at the box art of it because... I don't know why it was. It's the license to kill cover in um, the UK is very similar, but just a bit different with green. So it's like I was looking at something new, but I'd already seen it before. It's quite interesting. I used to love looking at all the VHS covers, and of course the boxes back there were quite bulky. So I remember I just spent loads of time looking at that, looking on the back cover, just wanting like a next player in this. Yeah, a nice overall memory actually. And I think obviously rose-tinted spectacles have rather helped what I feel about the game. Certainly. Well, there you have it. A lot of fond memories for 1993's James Bond The Duel on Sega Genesis and the Mega Drive. And with that, we are done with 1993. We are going to skip over 1994 and 1995. Even though we all know something really cool happened in movies in 1995, we definitely got Pierce Brosnan bringing the franchise back with GoldenEye. But no video games were released yet. And I know what you're thinking out there, video game fans, but... We have one more year to get through before we get to that one. So let's take a pit stop here in 1996. 007 is back for another mission, and this time he's going inside your PC. It's the release of the ultimate James Bond, an interactive dossier, and we've got a sneak peek. If you're a James Bond fan, you definitely have something to celebrate. Bond. James Bond. 
That's right, it's the return of your favorite super spy, Agent 007. But instead of watching him do all those death-defying stunts on the silver screen, you can now find them on your computer screen in a brand new CD-ROM. This multimedia retrospective spans over 30 years of the best Bond films. From Dr. No to Thunderball to Goldeneye, you'll find photos, videos, and some classic never-before-seen material. And dive into the disc's digital archives for a look at the world's most beautiful women, the most vile villains, and of course, the coolest high-tech gadgets from 17 James Bond films. There's also a trivia challenge for diehards and behind-the-scenes profiles with all five actors who've played James Bond over the years. So for those looking for some fun and excitement out of their PC, you'll find this is one explosive disc. Due out in early November, the Ultimate James Bond will sell for about 40 bucks and will run on a PC. 1996 would give us a debatable video game. While not truly a game, we did see the release of James Bond 007 The Ultimate Dossier. James Bond was back in the public eye thanks to GoldenEye's 1995 release. The Ultimate Dossier was produced by MGM Interactive and Eidos. For those of you paying attention, you'll remember that Domark, which held the license for the James Bond video games, was absorbed into Eidos just three years prior, and here they are already producing new James Bond software. It was available on Windows 3.1 and Windows 95. Like I've alluded to, it's not so much a game, but almost an early Wikipedia of 007. Although there is a trivia game included in the software, it is mostly a reference library in digital form. Much like the previous entry of James Bond The Duel, James Bond 007 The Ultimate Dossier definitely has its fans, and we're going to talk with two of them. Let's start with Becca from the Do You Expect Us to Talk podcast. You have to remember this is many years ago now, so probably like mid-90s. Yeah, so yeah, when I first bought it, sort of found it, back in those days, a lot of other British fans and listeners might remember a shop called Woolworths, very popular department store. I think I was staying at my dad's at the time, so I kind of wandered in, basically indebted to my dad for my love of Bond. Like, he grew up with it in sort of like the 60s, 70s, and sort of like passed it on to myself. So thanks, dad, legend. So yeah, well, staying over his one weekend, I uh, went into Woolworths. I thought, oh, what's this new exciting dossier? Just also getting into like computers and that sort of stuff, because he's worked in IT for many, many years. I can't remember how much it was, so that's pretty random. I don't know. I think it would be 90s prices, like 15, 20 pounds, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, so I basically harassed my dad, say, could you buy me this, please? It looks amazing. Yeah, because at the time, I think it was shortly after, I've literally got it in front of me. So yeah, being around like 95, 96, so I'm guessing, I think I was around like 11, 11, 12 at the time. Yes, Tomorrow Never Dies was probably my first Bond movie at the cinema. So I was keen to kind of inhale as much Bond as possible and learn so much about it. Yeah, so yeah, obviously got it home, ripped off all the cellophane, whacked it in there. Um, yeah, it was pretty amazing, actually. <laughs> Sounds like a great gateway drug, <laughs> but it probably was. Yeah, it's across two CDs. As if you didn't know, to break all... Oh, no, three CDs. That's like one, two, three. Across a selection of CDs. <laughs> Can't count. And I think it's quite good that you can kind of go through each era, like quinta each actor. Unfortunately, I've, the last few years, I've not had a chance to look at it, but I've, there are lots of videos now on YouTube um, showing like the menus and the music and things like that as well. 
and there's lots of sort of special sound effects. So if you click through the menus, there'll be like a sound effect from like Thunderball or Goldeneye or something like that. One of you know one of those films. I think which adds like a really nice touch as well. One of the menus as well kind of tells you like how to how to use it, how to navigate it, and it will be like a clip that from you know Desmond Llewellyn as Q. I think it was specially commissioned, telling you how to use it and grow up 007 and those sort of things. Yes, yes. Well, tell 007 that he'll have to wait. Sorry about that. Bit of old business had to be tidied up. Now then, it's a matter of vital importance that I speak to you. You see, at this very moment, we're in possession of what we at Q Branch consider to be the most amazing gadget we've ever created. CD-ROM 2. Each standard issue. 650 megabyte capacity. Full multimedia capability. They look quite ordinary, don't they? Rest assured, they are not. Now, contained within the sum total of everything MI6 knows about Agent 007, Everything. The women, the villains, the missions, and my gadgets, of course. And knowing 007 as I do, heaven knows what else you'll find. So, looks like you're on your own. Oh, should you need any assistance on the correct operation of this interactive dossier, simply click one of these buttons. Good luck, then. And please try not to blow it up. Yeah, I think it was really good. I think it was a quiz as well at one point. Um, you could like test your knowledge, uh, which is really cool. And you'd have various rankings according to like I don't know if you're a 007 or if you're like a villain or a Bond girl, for example, which is pretty cool. Having something like this, especially as a Bond fan, was a really important resource because as we just sort of saying at the top of the show before recording, at this kind of time, it was very much in the early days of, of the internet or kind of even before the internet as we know it today. Didn't have all that information at our fingertips unless we bought like all the newspapers, magazines reading encyclopedias basically or just you know have parents who grew up in that era of enjoying the other films so having like this for me i think was was amazing and it's kind of like it was the as you say the wikipedia of its day very much and all the information up until you know 95 until goldeneye um was pretty much there so you know i just literally absorbed all of that information just and stored away in my bond brain <laughs> when this interview is done i'm probably going to go and scour youtube for all the amazing videos and be like oh nostalgia <laughs> amazing ways of nostalgia I think those, for me, those are sort of the high points, really, that, that stick out. The amazing menus, like music, graphics, just the wealth of information on offer, really. I kind of remember it being quite thorough and being quite high quality as well for the time. I do kind of have a little funny story, well, I think it's funny anyway. I'm going to say like 10 years or thereabouts ago, um, I fell ill quite poorly, so I was off sick at home for quite a while. And I suddenly came across this somewhere on one of the Bond forums. And I tried, you know, got a friend putting me in touch with it, um, somebody who could kind of like partition my old, very old laptop at the time. Um, so you've got like a really new version of the OS and like the old version of the OS to be able to run it. And I was like, oh, yes, please. You know, I'm going to be at home for a little bit. So I need something to fill my time whilst I recover. And I was trying to explain a funny story about how it basically nearly killed my PC. I could have done with QBranch to come along and help. But yeah, basically installing it pretty much bricked my ancient laptop. So I got a new one last summer. But I really enjoyed it for the short time that it worked. I really enjoyed, you know, reliving like, the golden days, I guess, that was, a, you know, sort of very high-tech CD-ROM world of the 90s. Um, it's all the stuff I kind of grew up with, really. So, like, obviously, I was at school and used things like uh, Microsoft and Carter. So that's really ancient. Basically, a CD-ROM version of Wikipedia to, for those 
millennial kids. But yeah, I just, yeah, I really enjoyed playing with that again. It just kind of brought back so much, you know, so many fond memories and chance to relearn some of the, you know, the ones I thought I'd forgotten. But yeah, I just think, you know, as, as a collector as well, it's a really neat thing to have. It's kind of like a snapshot of how things were at the time. Obviously with the internet and everything at our fingertips, we haven't had anything like it before or since. Thank you for sharing those memories with us, Becca, from the Do You Expect This to Talk podcast. And while Becca was enjoying her James Bond dossier software in England circa 1996, so was another young man in the city of brotherly love. Let's hear about the experience of James Bond 007 The Ultimate Dossier from our friend of the show, Eric, from Philly. I got it. I believe it was 1997. The only reason why I remember is because the dossier itself only went up to GoldenEye. Tomorrow Never Dies hadn't come out yet, or I think it had already it had come out, but it wasn't up to date by then yet. My parents got it for me from Barnes & Noble, actually. Back then, Barnes & Noble, they had, in addition to like their movies, DVDs and stuff, they had a whole software section. It wasn't around very long, but, you know, we went there one afternoon and they had this thing. I never actually had any sort of Bond video game or anything like that because I didn't have an N64 at that time. So I hadn't played uh, GoldenEye on that system yet. But, you know, we got it and it came with a uh, VHS of GoldenEye, which I had not seen yet, even though I had seen other Bond films, but I hadn't seen GoldenEye yet. So it was like a two for one. And I believe it was like. $30 or something like that. And, you know, like in the 90s, VHS would cost like 20. So, you know, recognizing it was a good deal. And my parents knew that I was a young developing James Bond fan. So they got it. It was two disc. You know how the software was back in those days. You know, one disc would be installed. But this one, actually, the program itself was two disc. So you would just install it. You boot it up. You get this cool little intro movie. montage of all these bond moments again going from dr noah to golden eye at that time i was like 11 or 12 when i got it my bond knowledge was pretty much just the movies whenever i would watch a movie pretty much my extent would just be whatever the movie was and i knew if it was sean connery roger moore i actually didn't know of george lazenby yet so i didn't even know that he was a bond yet so all i just knew was Sean Connery, Roger Moore, Timothy Dalton, and Pierce Brosnan, since GoldenEye was the most recent one out. You know, you load it up, and it was actually where I got all my knowledge of Bond, of the franchise. Not just the movies, but learning all the villains, the side characters, the vehicles, the Bond girls, and then even as far as, you know, all the various crews and the directors of the films and everything. And because of that, that's where I learned kind of how each Bond director kind of has his mark on the franchise, you know. 
when you load it up, there are different sections. There's, you know, for the movie itself, info about Bond, the vehicles, the girls, the villains. So it, it had its own little section and each section has its own little intro movie. And it's real cool because it's a nice little cut of, you know, different scenes from out the franchise and it's cut to various music from the franchise as well. When you click on each movie, each movie has a little vignette. It's about a minute or so. And again, they're really, really well edited little scenes. If you actually go on YouTube and just search up the dossier, you'll find a lot of those. I want you to know this is nothing personal. It's purely business. Where's Sanchez? This private vendetta of yours could easily compromise Her Majesty's government. Effective immediately. Your license to kill is revoked. Am I going to win or lose? Sweet dreams, Mr. Bond. I want the truth. That's not my money. You keep it, old buddy. I still enjoy watching them since it was a Windows 95 thing, and obviously you can't do nothing like that anymore, even if your computer actually still has a, you know, an optical drive, but you couldn't do anything with it anyway. You get all the details on the Lotus or on the Aston Martin, the BMW from GoldenEye. You get insights onto what was uh, Hugo Drax's plan, what was Goldfinger's plan, and, and so forth. Whatever history that the movies presented at the time, you would get kind of the fictional history of, you know, of that thing. The fictional history of Pussy Galore or Honey Rider or so on. It was just a really cool piece of software that I didn't know it actually existed. It wasn't something I ever saw advertised. It was just my parents knew I was a young fan Oh, uh, another thing that was cool about it, as you went on and you read more and more of the info, you know, that's there, they actually had a little trivia game and it had different difficulty levels. So like the more obscure the information, you know, the harder the question would be. They treated it almost like Bond defusing the bomb at the end of Goldfinger and things like that. So it was just really cool. And like I said, it really kind of pushed my interest in the franchise forward because if I didn't get that, I never heard of on Her Majesty's Secret Service. I just always thought it went from Sean Connery and then it went to Roger Moore. I didn't know there was George Lazenby was only there for one. Yeah, it's something that I kind of wish that, you know, with all the, you know, between cloud gaming and stuff like that, it's one of the things I wish someone could kind of remaster or whatever or redo it again and update it with, you know, the rest of Pierce Brosnan's run. Like I said, it, it only goes up to GoldenEye. But it'd be cool if it adds the rest of his films and all of Daniel Craig's films. But yeah, that was the gist of it. It was just a really kind of, I guess, I, I don't Yeah, I guess unique. I don't think I ever really came across any other sort of software. I mean, nowadays you have wiki pages for your favorite things. You would just go online, go to a Bond wiki page or something like that. But yeah, it was just a really cool piece of software that really like the watershed moment for me that where it's like, okay, I'm now a fan of this franchise. 
I don't know about you guys out there in listener land, but it does my heart good to hear Eric from Philly finding his way to our beloved franchise through the James Bond 007 Ultimate Dossier. And that, ladies and gentlemen, will bring us to the end of 1996 and take us to 1997. can only mean one thing. Introducing GoldenEye 007. The first Bond adventure. Where you direct the action. Do you know how to use one of these? Shot by shot by shot. Load a rumble pack and see how it feels when 007 meets Nintendo 64. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, the time has come for us to discuss GoldenEye 64 from 1997 on the Nintendo 64. The game was made by a company called Rare. It was exclusive to the Nintendo 64. It is a first-person shooter style game, and as you probably already know if you're listening to this podcast, it was hugely, hugely successful. It sold over 8 million copies. Strangely enough, it was originally planned for the Super Nintendo. They were working on it all the way back in 94, 95 when GoldenEye's movie production was going full speed. But I think the game company made the right decision to take an extra couple of years and make a really good game. Some say one of the most popular games of all time. And the numbers are there to back that up. This game, GoldenEye 007 for the Nintendo 64, was insanely popular due to the multiplayer mode. Now, many people enjoy playing the straight campaign mode, but the multiplayer, four ports on the N64, a split screen, four screen divided up, just made for some awesome multiplayer. The controls are really great for the game. The game got so popular that it brought non-Bond fans who just enjoyed video games to the Bond franchise. The groundswell that GoldenEye the movie brought back for the franchise would get an additional bump from all these new gamers who are now discovering GoldenEye, the film, and the James Bond franchise overall in 1997 with the release of this amazing game. I could go on and on about it. I've given you the basics. As you could probably guess, we got a lot of send-ins to talk about this game on this podcast documentary. And I had the hardest time, but I narrowed it down to three. One of the send-ins you're going to hear a lot of his name is Frank McNeely. He is at GoldenEye97 on Twitter. That should kind of tell you something right now. Frank is probably the biggest GoldenEye on Nintendo 64 fan I've ever encountered. And he was more than generous with his time to discuss all the ins and outs of GoldenEye. He knows more about GoldenEye than you might have ever even considered. So without further ado, let me get to the first of multiple check-ins we're going to do with Frank McNeely at GoldenEye97. Essentially, I think I was eight years old at my best friend's house, and his older brother and his friend were playing GoldenEye64 multiplayer, and I think they were playing as like Oromoff and Baron Samity and facilities with throwing knives, and one of them was like, in the shaft above the toilet. And I was just like, this looks amazing. I got to check this out. 
GoldenEye, the movie, was my first James Bond movie. And I mean, I saw the movie when I was way too young. I was, I think, six or seven years old. And immediately it was like, Pierce Brosnan is the coolest guy ever. I want to be this guy. Like as a kid, I wanted to be this guy. And then all of a sudden, I realized that GoldenEye 64 was based on the movie. And in the single player campaign, you had to play as Pierce Brosnan. And I'm mind blown. So essentially, I mean... I guess for those James Bond fans out there, maybe not those that necessarily had GoldenEye as their first Bond movie they ever saw. Imagine whichever Bond movie and Bond you saw first, and then you immediately, or I guess a few years later, got a video game where you could play that character. And add on to the fact that GoldenEye was so well-designed, even by, at the time, an inexperienced team of video game designers, like in how perfect it was. I mean, it was, again, mind-blowing. I don't think any video game will ever have the same impact, just, again, with that combination of seeing GoldenEye and then then getting the game and getting to play as that character that you were so wowed by. Something that has held up well with GoldenEye. So GoldenEye, it's a pretty basic first-person shooter, something that I really like. This has amused me ever since I was a kid. Like, you can purposefully fail objectives and levels and keep going. I feel like with most first-person shooters, if you fail something, then it stops and you have to start over. But with GoldenEye, you can go through facilities, shoot all the scientists, and still finish the level, and you'll fail. But, I mean, you can still, like, do what you want. I think everyone remembers using the um, cheats in GoldenEye 64 and how much fun that was. Something that was a favorite of mine was having slow motion animation on and having all guns specifically rocket launchers and just shooting guys and watching them flying really slow through the air again just like purposefully failing objectives i just got a kick out of that it's such a basic thing because i feel like if goldeneye was a bit more advanced we wouldn't have gotten that like it would have been your typical you fail this objective now you start over but now i feel like that holds up well because of how unique that specific aspect is and then the multiplayer feature was actually an afterthought. Like it was developed in literally, I think, six weeks before the game was released. So although it was multiplayer is very basic, I mean, it's really all we needed. I feel like Perfect Arc, which is the game that followed GoldenEye in terms of the game's developers, that's what they chose to do next. And Perfect Arc for the Nintendo 64 has a very advanced multiplayer feature. Like there are combat missions, there are albots, there's a lot of thought and time went into that multiplayer, but I kind of appreciate that GoldenEye 64 is very basic, like, it's essentially all it is is split screen, there's some different scenarios, there's different characters from some of the Bond movies, and I feel like that's really all you needed, and I feel like because it was so simple and basic in terms of level design, weapons, characters, like, that's how that became, like, the well-known feature that initially was the word of mouth that the game had because GoldenEye was not an immediate success. It was largely word of mouth, largely from the multiplayer, which was revolutionary for the time. And so the game was released in 1997, August 25th, 1997, which Sean Connery's birthday. So I mean, the 25th of August, good day. Game of the year in 1998, game of the year in 1999. Basically, once the word got out, like people couldn't get enough of it. So those two things specifically are what hold up strong for me today. I got GoldenEye 64 when I was a kid, and I had younger brothers, so my parents 
they let me get GoldenEye. I had no idea that you could shoot so many guys that there'd be blood. And so my parents were like, eh, this isn't going to work. So essentially I was forced to trade it in for another game at the time. But then a couple of years pass and they did let me play The World Is Not Enough for the Nintendo 64, which not a bad game. It was developed by EA, which I believe was their second title after Tomorrow Never Dies for the PlayStation 1. It was a decent game, and my parents allowed me to play it with the stipulation that my brothers weren't allowed to play or watch, because again, younger brothers. And I was only, I think, 10 at the time, and it was, you know, a T game, which is essentially PG-13 for games. So I played that, and then I believe when I was in, I think I was in eighth grade, so I was 14 years old. My brothers were all over the age of 10 at the time, so at that point, I was finally allowed to get GoldenEye 64 again. Since then, you know, it's I've never stopped playing it. It's never faded for me. I mean, I think GoldenEye was the one game that was at the top for the longest time. And then in the early 2000s, the same friend where I discovered GoldenEye 64, I discovered Grand Theft Auto 3 and Vice City. And so then at that point, Grand Theft Auto was another franchise that kind of elevated my stance on video games. And just with the amount of things you, you can do in that, in that realm, I mean, that kind of opened that even farther. However... Again, GoldenEye was always still there. Like I, as like a way to relieve stress from video games, like GoldenEye was always the game, along with Grand Theft Auto, that kind of take my mind off things. You know, do something in a game that you wouldn't be able to do, you know, in real life, obviously. Man, I do love those origin stories, and Frank definitely had his love for Nintendo 64's GoldenEye 007. But let's check in with someone else's origin story. Let's hear from friend of the show, Ezra Gallo. My GoldenEye experience begins at the family Thanksgiving of my then-girlfriend when I was in college. We had gone to Thanksgiving, and all the kids that were there were sitting around in the living room playing GoldenEye all day. And I sat down. It was the first time I'd ever seen this game. I had a Nintendo 64, but I think at the time I was just playing through Super Mario 64. I saw this game, started playing, and I got smoked. It was ugly. Every time I played, these kids knew where exactly everything was. They knew exactly where the golden gun was on every board. If we were playing with that, they knew where rocket launchers were. And if we weren't playing with those, they knew exactly where to get the best guns of every kind. So I left that family Thanksgiving knowing that come Christmas, the same thing was going to be going on. And I went to Walmart the next day. Yes, Black Friday, which wasn't quite as big a deal back then, but still grabbed a copy of this game. I did not really pay attention to any of the art, even though I've seen it tons of times since then. I didn't pay attention to the packaging, anything about that. I paid full price at Walmart, went home, and started practicing this game with the only goal beating a bunch of children at a family Christmas in a month. So I did that, went to that Christmas, and then just smoked a whole bunch of kids. And it was very fulfilling. It was really all I, I wanted from the game. But then I, of course, played it tons of times. I know I played it with the host of this podcast many times in college. 
even today, if I was to see somebody playing Goldeneye, I would jump in and want to play it because it's maybe the most fun of all the shooting games I've ever played. And I've played tons of multiplayer shooting games and everything, but something about the Goldeneye, something about the story and just the controllers, I don't think anything has ever quite managed to be the same. There are controllers that are much smoother now. There are controllers that are more precise, but the system on Goldeneye just worked perfectly for what it was. I don't think there's anything more noble than mastering a game to beat children. So good for you, Ezra Gallo. And he's not wrong about those controls. We mentioned them before. Big part of the success of the game. Let's squeeze in one more person's experience with Goldeneye. Before we dig a little deeper, as promised, we will get back to Frank McNeely and dig a little deeper into Goldeneye. But let's get one more experience. Let's hear from our old friend Phil from Manchester. Goldeneye on the N64 is the greatest game ever. I mean, there's no denying that is a fantastic game. Yeah, it's one of those that you could play it with full knowledge of the movie and you, you could really get into the character of it. Or you could not have any knowledge of it and it was still just awesome. As I remember trying every different way around playing it, either let's do a speed run and get through it as quick as possible, or, okay, I'm going to hunt down and kill every single last one of the baddies. The best level to do that on was the caves levels towards the end where it was unlimited baddies. So I'd get like one of the machine guns. He had some automatic doors, hide behind them and just sit there for like half hour, picking off bad guy after bad guy that came <laughs> forwards. <laughs> this is great fun. This is kind of- <laughs> <laughs> oh, I had to squeeze in that last bit of interview with Phil from Manchester because it just illustrates how good Goldeneye on the N64 is because there's just so many little things you can do with it that makes it so replayable. What an incredible game. Now there's a whole other world built around Goldeneye 64. A whole other world of James Bond video games. Unofficial, shrouded in mystery. It is the modding community. People who make games based off of game engines like the game engine from GoldenEye 64, but then they make their own levels and their own missions. And if I told you that you could play Goldfinger 64, would you believe me? Well, if you're not in the modding community, you might not know that's a thing, but it is, amongst other things. So let's get back to Frank McNeely, who knows quite a bit about the James Bond GoldenEye Nintendo 64 modding community. In 2011, it was announced that a group of modders, and so modders are basically a group of people that essentially work to make an alternate version of a game. So essentially, this is now where I talk about the GoldenEye modding community. And not just with GoldenEye 64, but I think with most Nintendo 64 games, because they're so old, they're easy to adapt with the right tools and with the right talents to like kind of change things. So. Something that was announced in 2011 was a group of modders were working to recreate 
GoldenEye 64 into Goldfinger 64. And at the time, I'm like, huh, I wonder how they're going to do that. That sounds like a big project. It's going to take forever. And I'm just like, I wish I had the talents to help out with this. So I heard about it and then I forgot about it. And then literally six years later in 2017, I heard that they did it. They completed the game. And so then I found like a video on YouTube and I'm like, holy crap, like this is like a playable game. And there's a way to play it on a Nintendo 64, which I was just like, what? Sign me up. Because backtracking for a second, I was in the UK for a year in the early 2010s. And I was like a whole year where I didn't have a Nintendo 64, which I, kind of sounds dumb, but I essentially downloaded an emulator to play GoldenEye and other N64 games on my laptop without a controller. So it's, it's amazing how like I got really good playing GoldenEye 64 with a keyboard. I took a lot of practice, but I mean... After that experience, you know, only having the laptop for a year, I was like, yeah, it always has to be the console for me. I just, emulators are just not my thing. So essentially when I, going back to Goldfinger 64, I saw the video and I'm just like, I have to play this game. I know that it can probably run on an emulator, but I'm like, if I can figure out how to play this on the Nintendo 64, I'm going to do it. So I, I did some research and there's a thing out there called an EverDrive 64. If you search in Amazon, it'll come up and it's, it looks like it's from a fishy maker, but I mean, it's spelled, I think, K-R-I-K-double-Z. So, I mean, at first you think, well, that kind of sounds fishy, but then I looked more into it and it was totally legitimate. So basically what it is, it looks like a Nintendo 64 cartridge, but the difference is, is in the top of it, there's a little slot for a SD card, which is essentially a card that goes in the cameras. And so the key is, is you have to have Nintendo 64 ROMs in order to be able to play them on the EverDrive or to download the mod patches that modders create. And so the EverDrive 64 is totally legal. It doesn't break any rules from Nintendo, but I mean, accessing ROMs is a different story. So I mean, well, actually, I guess Nintendo has started to lock up their access to ROMs because they're like, that's our product, you know, blah, blah, which is totally legitimate. So essentially, as long as you have access to Nintendo ROM files, you can essentially download them onto that SD card and play them through that cartridge on a Nintendo 64. So that cost about $200 a couple of years ago. I looked today on Amazon and it's around that same price still on Amazon, which for someone like me, again, whose mind was blown by GoldenEye 64 and just the Nintendo 64 in general. So once I got the EverDrive, I was like, okay, now I need to figure out how to download a ROM patch. So now I had to figure out how do I actually play Goldfinger 64 using this equipment? So there's a website called the N64 Vault, and it's n64vault.com. This is where all of the GoldenEye mods live. It's not just GoldenEye. Like, there are some mods for Super Smash Brothers 64, Banjo-Kazooie, other games too, which are also cool to play. There are different mods that different various modders have made over the years. Some are full campaigns, so Goldfinger 64 is there. Someone recently did Tomorrow Never Die 64. I mean, it's only 10 missions, but it was a lot of fun playing. More often than not, a modder will make a single level. So they'll replace one of the levels in GoldenEye 64 and do their own thing. So they'll create a new world. They'll have different objectives. The whole works, which even getting a new level to play is pretty awesome. But getting a full campaign, though, is a lot of work for the modders. But I mean, it's pretty awesome when it happens and it works. So needless to say, I figured out how to play Goldfinger 64 on the EverDrive. And I mean, it was like reliving that experience with 
first playing GoldenEye 64. I mean, I never knew I wanted to play as Nintendo 64 Sean Connery, but when the opportunity came, I'm just like, yeah, this is great. There's even a mission in Goldfinger 64 where you're driving the DB5 in Switzerland, and basically they took the tank controls and put it in the DB5. So essentially, there's no like tank gun, but essentially you can you just like run over the guys or shoot them in the level, which I, I just I couldn't get enough of. I was laughing so hard. So Goldfinger 64 ultimately helped me discover all these mods that were out there. I think for the last couple of years, there's actually, there's a group of modders now working on The Spy Who Loved Me 64, which if you go on YouTube, there are some videos that show footage of gameplay and it looks pretty legitimate. Like I, I think out of all the Roger Moore Bond films, that's the one I think that that would be pretty rich play other than Moonraker, which of course Moonraker has been mined the heck out of for other Bond video games already. And then also one of the guys who was working on The Spy Who Loved Me 64 created a documentary on what's happened so far. And at the very end, he mentioned that another group of modders is now working on the Living Daylight 64. And I'm just like, yeah! But, I mean, that's literally in the very early stages of development. So, I mean, it'll probably be several years before Living Daylight 64 is a thing. I think they're trying to get Spy Loving 64 out sometime next year. So having those things on the horizon is pretty exciting. That's really all I have to mention about the GoldenEye mods. Again, in 64vault.com, there's a lot of levels, a lot of several campaigns. Not just Tomorrow Never Dies, Goldfinger, but just several like new campaigns. Like For example, I think there are two campaigns where you're playing as army men, like from the army men video games. So there's several different things to check out for people that kind of want to have access to that kind of stuff because you know I would I'm a super fan of both my 64. Super fan indeed. Now some of you may or may not have known that there was a group of programmers working on a GoldenEye re-release for its 25th anniversary, which would have been in 2022. They put several years of work into remastering the classic GoldenEye 64 for modern computers, and the project was going pretty well until they received a cease and desist letter from Eon Productions. And I'll pass it back to Frank to give a more detailed version of what happened with the GoldenEye 25 project. I guess it was about a month or two ago, I mean, Eon essentially sent a cease and desist letter to the two guys who were working on the game, which I think what was most disappointing about that was they had been working on it, I think, since 2017. So two to three years of work, or some of their work, was immediately gone, which was so disappointing. But I also feel like this is also a good thing because now they've pivoted. They're making an entirely new spy game, which I feel like is even better, to be honest. Um, it's called Spies Don't Die. And again, still two guys working on it. And occasionally one of them will like share the music that he's composing for the game like on Twitter. And gosh, it sounds so cool. Like he's still he's still trying to use that Eric Sarah Goldeneye sound to like compose the the sound and score of the video games, which I gets me really excited. And then I think about a week ago, they shared a photo or I guess a, a still of a Japanese level, which immediately made me think of that level from Nightfire where Bond is in Japan and he's in that Japanese house. Like I was just like, 
everything I see looks so good. And I just keep thinking it would have been nice to have an updated GoldenEye 64, but I feel like now we're going to get something, something new that's in that same style that I feel like I've been wanting to see. This is why I got my mind blown again when Goldfinger 64 came out is because I'm such a fan of that, of what they did with GoldenEye 64. And I feel like it's only been replicated a couple of times over the last, you know, since the game originally came out. And I feel like because it's so rare to have, I guess, that style of game replicated, it's just when it happens, it's really great. So I feel like Spies Don't Die is going to do that. And I think they plan to release it in, I think in time still for GoldenEye 64's 25th anniversary, but it just won't be GoldenEye 25. So in two years, I mean, if they can, you know, do what they need to do. They didn't lose all their work with the cease and desist letter coming from Eon, but I'm hoping that they still get it out and in two or three years and, you know, we can kind of all get our minds blown again by something that's at that same level that GoldenEye 64 has. You heard it right from our friend Frank McNeely. Spies don't die. The spiritual successor to the GoldenEye 25 project. Be on the lookout for it in 2022. You didn't think I'd leave without letting Frank get in just one more piece of GoldenEye information now, did you? GoldenEye on the N64 ended up being such a phenomenon that an independent film comedy mockumentary about a GoldenEye 64 video game championship was actually made. And I'll let Frank tell you a little bit about it before we move on. Something else that I'll mention is a couple years ago, a This Is Spinal Tap documentary style documentary came out about GoldenEye 64 called Going for GoldenEye, and it was on Amazon Prime. And so basically the movie was around like a fake Nintendo 64 tournament, and it kind of just was like, again, it was like a This Is Spinal Tap style. It was totally a spoof, but it was so funny because again, if you're even a, I feel like a passive fan of the game, like it's, it was kind of goofy in how it was set up and apparently there's a sequel in the works although who knows when if and when we would get that but I did watch that and that was pretty funny and that ladies and gentlemen will bring us to the end of 1997 and possibly the most significant game in the James Bond video game catalog GoldenEye 007 on the N64 A true video game great and a classic that will endure for years and years in both James Bond lore and video game lore. And with that, it is time to close out 1997. And now we will step into 1998. With 1997 coming to a close, you might think that the next game in the video game pantheon of James Bond would be Tomorrow Never Dies. But in 1998, a Nintendo Game Boy game by a company called Sapphire was released, and it kind of went under the radar. It is a top-down adventure game very similar to your handheld Legend of Zelda adventure games. It's a very much seek-and-find, go-through-a-storyline adventure that is actually quite fun and quite entertaining. Many consider James Bond 007 on the Nintendo Game Boy 
to be the most overlooked of all the James Bond video games. I can tell you I've personally played it and truly enjoyed it. It is a fun little adventure that got totally overpowered by GoldenEye on the N64 coming out just the year before it. Plus, the Game Boy itself was winding down. The Game Boy Color was already dominating the market, and the upcoming Game Boy Advance was well on its way. So the classic black and white, simple pixel art of James Bond 007 on the Game Boy may have been overlooked due to its simplistic nature, but I'm going to tell you, it was a pretty good game. You know who agrees with me? Luis from Ivague in Colombia. He took some time to talk to us about his James Bond 007 on Game Boy adventure. This game, James Bond 007, is pretty important to me because it was one of the first experiences I had with the character. Obviously, everybody knows about GoldenEye, the 1995 movie adapted into a game two years later. Not many people had a Nintendo 64 around me, but some friends had this Game Boy thing. I remember one classmate got one for Christmas, and he got two games, DuckTales and James Bond 007. He didn't like, actually, that game, and he knew I was a, a fan of the character, so he just lent me for a weekend. It was the first time I had contact with this title, and I, I fell in love immediately with the game. Because it was different. Obviously, I wasn't expecting a first-person shooter <laughs> on the Game Boy. But it was kind of a Zelda game. And it was really nice because I said, wow, let's see what happens with James Bond in this kind of setting. Because being like Link <laughs> looking for a princess, I don't know. Let's see what happens. And it was a really nice experience. It was really, really good. For the graphics that we could see in the DMG Game Boy, it was really good. I really like it. The speech bubbles they had were very clear. And at the time, I wasn't very fluent speaking English or learning English. I was good, but not as good as I am now. I think I am good. <laughs> but it helped me a lot because there were tons of new vocabulary. So for a guy living in Colombia, we having this kind of access to this material, it was really nice. Uh, unfortunately, I couldn't finish the game the first time I had it because it was only for a weekend. So I had to return to my friend. Obviously, I was asking him later to allow me to have a, a second chance to play the game. But he traded. He traded not only the game, but the system for a watch, a horrible watch. <laughs> so if he would have <laughs> told me, I would have, I don't know, gave him uh, more money or something in exchange because I really liked the game. So there were many years in which I couldn't have access to this game, but I ended up playing it again so many years later when I started my, I think it was my first year at college. The first time I got the game or I had the opportunity to play the game was two years before finishing high school. On my first or second year at college, got an emulator, obviously, and I got the ROM. But it wasn't the real experience. It wasn't the same. It, was, it didn't have the same magic. It was good, obviously. I finished the game on an emulator. It was uh, a good thing to change colors and things like that. But that was my first experience. Obviously, with the time passing and having more opportunities to get this kind of stuff on internet trading, I managed to get a copy of the game recently. Actually, it was uh, like in February. So the first time I played this game, well, I was 14, 15 years old, but I got my own copy at 37. <laughs> so 
it was not very expensive. I got it on Valentine's Day, not relationship. Actually, it was on my own. $35.95 British pounds on eBay. I was really glad because it came with the box. It came with the manuals. And there is actually a poster, Nintendo 64 poster, that showcases the games. Obviously, there is a golden eye section. And on the other side, there is the Game Boy printer, the Game Boy camera, and a selection of games like Link's Awakening, that is a game that I really loved, and James Bond 007. And it's in really good conditions. The box not so much, but the manuals and the inserts are really, really good. And there is a Nintendo registration card, but that is actually a survey with very weird questions made by a Nintendo UK distributor, I think, because they say, do you need financial assistance or do you have a bank account? It's really, really weird. Are you planning to move home in the next 12 months? Do you consider your current personal pension arrangements to be adequate? Things like what? I never imagined seeing these kind of questions in a James Bond-related stuff. Well, it's weird. And I suppose a kid getting this back in 1998 would be really weird because I wouldn't know what to answer if I got this for Christmas when I was a kid. No, but I didn't. Talking about the game, there are some things that stand out. First, the intuitive controls. I didn't have the manual back then when I first played the game, but I knew from the first screen when I think it's M who's telling you what are you doing, why are you in China, and what are you supposed to do? Press A for this, B for this, move with the arrows and walk around. If you haven't played even a Zelda game before, Actually, I think this game was easier to play than the original Zelda from, from the Nintendo Entertainment System. Because actually, the original Zelda game just throws you in the middle of an action and you got to get swords and all those things. No, this one tells you why are you there, what are you supposed to do. You can talk to the villagers. It was really, really good. I really like that. Now, many years later, I realized that it has a really good design and offers a really good user experience since you start the game. It's not difficult at all. Another thing that I remember a lot, there is a part in the game, I think it's a market in Marrakesh, and there is a guy asking you for a small red fish. As you know, in the game, you go and talk to different people, and normally these people tell you things that they need in order for you to advance the story. So there was a guy asking for a small red fish, and I look for that small red fish many hours. I remember getting to this part when I played the game that original weekend. And I remember getting to the same part years later. And I look for that small red fish all in the market. And I say, well, there is no small red fish. Let's see what happens. And I continue moving the story. And at the end, I realized I didn't need that small red fish. As I wasn't very fluent in English and I didn't know a lot about English expressions. Well, the small red fish is another name for a red herring. So it's just something to distract you. Actually, I realized that many years later on the forums, <laughs> one day I woke up with that memory and I say, I am going to look for a small red fish on the internet. Maybe there is something that I missed I don't remember exactly which website was it, but there was a thread on this and they say, well, it's just a red herring. So it's, not, <laughs> it's something to distract you. Okay. I learned that expression from that day on and I discovered that it's an actually a plot device 
in many stories, some kind of deception in order to distract you from the main target and get an element of surprise later. Yeah. So it was frustrating, but it was so clever that I really appreciate that detail from the game developers now. Also, there is another thing. I don't know if I should warn about spoilers <laughs> for a 1998 game, but I like to check for every corner in these kind of games, like the Zelda games, and this one is top-down view. And on the second level, when you get to London, you have to talk to Q. And you go to talk to Q, and I touch everything in the lab, and there was a kind of uh, explosive or flying sofa, and it opens a hole on, on a wall. And you enter, and you get something that is called marble, M-A-R-B-L-E. And you say, well, let's keep this thing. I don't know what's going to happen, but let's keep this thing. And it happens that if you carry that with you at the end, there is a secret ending for the game. So the first time I finished the game, I had this marble thing and I got the secret ending on my first try. So it was really good. I didn't know. Actually, I didn't know I had a secret ending. When I started looking for the game, I said, oh, if you got the marble thing at the end, you're treated to a um, closing screen when there is Bond and Song Hemei, the Bond girl of this game. Actually, it's the first villain that you encounter in the first level of the game. She becomes the leading lady of the story later. There is a rendition of A View to a Kill theme song at the end. And I don't know, this is another thing. I've always seen this bond, the bond of this game, as Roger Moore, not Pierce Brosnan. It was Brosnan time when it was released, 1998, yes. So uh, Brosnan was just fresh off his second outing, Tomorrow Never Dies. But I never associated Brosnan with this game. I always seen this bond as Moore, mainly because there are some appearances from uh, Joe's. There is also Odd Job in one part, but I never seen Brosnan in this game. But in general, this game... It's wonderful. I would really like to see a remake of this game, like what happened with Link's Awakening. Obviously, it's not going to happen, but it would be really nice to have this kind of different James Bond adventure. Probably wouldn't be too commercial because gamers who have been playing James Bond games are always looking for the next GoldenEye. And this was actually a really different game. It's a different game. It's really good. I really like it. It's not too long. So it's really good. You don't have to spend a lot of time. There are some parts in which you can play, I think it's Baccarat in this game. Other games have had these kind of mini games. But in general, I, I really love the game. I think the developers made a really good job. They captured the essence of the character of lore in general. Not only with the old characters, I think that, for instance, Song Mei, the Bond girl, it's a really good character. It's a villain in the first part of the game, and then it's an ally. So obviously for a kid in 1998, <laughs> it wouldn't be so deep. But now I have played this again, and I say, wow, this is darker than I thought. Even if the sprites are cute, <laughs> it's really cute to see Bond blocking the ninjas with his bare hands. But it has some undertones that should be really nice to revisit. It's interesting. I really, really like the game. My experience is really positive. And if you are a Bond fan, you should try this game at least once. 
just the first 10 minutes and you will find that this is a really good thing. Obviously, it's kind of silly, but hey, most of the movies are and we enjoy them. <laughs> so the game is, is also kind of silly. So if you, if you like silly Bond, like Moore, <laughs> you would like this game. If you like dark and gritty Bond, like crazy movies, you should also play this game because it has everything for everyone. So I would really recommend this game a lot. Well, this game gave me wonderful memories from when I was a teenager. Also, those were really sad times because I had some personal things in my family. My granddad was not so well, and he was a James Bond fan too. He loved Sean Connery, the character. Actually, this Bond collecting thing is a way of keeping his memory alive. So this game was part of those days even if it was only for a weekend, meant a lot to me. When I had the opportunity to play the game later, and now that I have the opportunity to have the physical copy of the game, which is working in perfect working condition because it saves files, it saves all the progress you made in the game. It's really good. It's like having a piece of your teenage years in your hands. And every time I play the game, it brings back those memories, memories of good days. <laughs> Yes, it's very emotional for me. Man, I love to hear the passion from people like Louise from Eva Gay in Colombia, who so very clearly treasures this game and the connections that these video games make to our Bond family worldwide is just incredible. That will bring us to the end of 1998. Next up, 1999. Ever wonder what it's like to be 007? Now you know. Be Bond on PlayStation Game Console. That was the audio for the 1999 commercial for EA's Tomorrow Never Dies, made exclusively for the PlayStation 1. Note, I did say that the publisher was Electronic Arts, or EA. This would begin a long-held licensing relationship between the James Bond franchise and Electronic Arts. There are going to be several games to come that are published by EA. As I mentioned, this one's a PlayStation 1 exclusive, and they broke from the very successful mode of the Nintendo 64 GoldenEye release, and they went with a third-person action-adventure-style game. It was pretty daunting to have to release the next game after the ultra-popular GoldenEye. Now, as listeners of this documentary know, there was the James Bond 007 Game Boy Adventure released in 1998 between here and there, but this was a bigger more noticeable console release with a new publisher. Most people find that Tomorrow Never Dies is actually a pretty good game, but it's easy to get overlooked because of the success of GoldenEye and frankly nothing that's coming up on our list of games will ever truly measure up to the power that was GoldenEye, but Tomorrow Never Dies, not a bad game. We have two interviews to discuss it. We will start with Nicholas Susink from Argentina and author of the book World of GoldenEye, available on Amazon.com. Tomorrow Never Dies. I rented it 
I never owned any of these one games because the only console system I had was a family game, which is a bootleg version of NES available in Argentina. And then when I got into the Bond phenomenon with uh, GoldenEye for Nintendo 64 and then the movie, my dad rented the Nintendo 64 video game. And then when Tomorrow Dice came out, we started renting the PlayStation and Tomorrow Dice, which it was out in 1999, but by Argentina, the right early 2000, I think. Something really interesting to tell you is that I never seen an original copy of the game over here. It's a very common tradition in Argentina when games came out in CDs and DVDs to get bootleg versions. So even in an official video store, they rented uh, movies, VHS, the video games you could rent for 20 pesos, which is back then it was like $20. Now it's a lot more. Well, so I rented the PlayStation with the game. And, well, I think I recall enjoying it because it had the, you know, the skin missions, then you could drive the BMW. I think on the downside, well, it wasn't as, as interesting as GoldenEye for Nintendo 64, obviously, because it, you know, I felt it lacked a bit uh, those dynamics, you know, the free ambience that GoldenEye for Nintendo 64 had that you could explore the environment. Tomorrow Never Dies is a little bit linear in that aspect, but I mean, in a, from a nostalgic part, I would say I, I love it. Even today, I've replayed it a little bit, and the game has its grace, its touch, so, you know, that's one of the things I have to say. So, something interesting, uh, the game, of course, since it was since we rented it, we didn't take the cover, but the packaging, I, I remember the bootleg version didn't have the artwork with Bond and the car and the plane. It was a, an artwork based on the uh, magazine ad, which was in black and white. It was really strange to see that. But, well, I, I was browsing through the catalog to rent the PlayStation with the game, and I saw to run our dice and... I didn't care back then if it was original or a copy because, you know, I didn't have internet or that many, many information on new games. And I knew it, uh, we had the Nintendo 64 video game and then the next game was going to be Runner Dice for PlayStation. And, well, I saw it and I told my dad, well, let's rent it. I, I want to play it, the second one game, but I really like the packaging and unfortunately, I didn't found anywhere where I could buy, you know, the original CD, buying it from eBay with the exchange. It's kind of complicated over here because of the import taxes and all of that. But one day I have the desire to get the, the original, you know. I love the one video games and even if I don't have a PlayStation 2 or PlayStation, I just have the, the Nintendo 64 and the the Golden Eye, which I bought many years later, but I kind of want to have this the original video game just to exhibit because it's a part of my childhood. Either is the games are were original or not or bootleg, but they're still a part of my childhood. I I love replaying. What I makes me laugh very much is sometimes that the actors they sound a little bit overacted. <laughs> I mean. 
no, not intentionally overacted, but you know, it's a video game, so they are supposed to say things like, oh, Mr. Bond, and all, all this stuff that I found it very funny. And whenever I replay the, you know, walkthrough videos in YouTube, I, I laugh a lot, really. I wonder what it would feel like if I ever saw you again. Uh, now I know. That's for walking out on me. Well, I feel much better. Now what brings you here? Paris, someone in your husband's organization was involved in the sinking of the Devonshire and the murder of those British sailors. You don't know anything about that, do you? Elliot's company is involved in many things, James. I don't keep track of them all. Look, I'm sorry what happened between us, but I need your help. Well, I know there's a restricted lab. Ah, Mr. Bond. Won't you allow me to give you a tour of the facilities? <laughs> and well, another cool thing this game had, besides the skiing missions, was the pressing engagement level, which is level 4, I think where, well, it's on Carver's printing press that you could shoot down all the boons and they fall to the printing press. So that was really a really nice touch, uh, considering the limitations of the game, of course, but that's one thing I, I really, really enjoy. And I want to thank Nicholas for taking the time to let us know his thoughts on the Tomorrow Never Dies video game for the PlayStation 1. Don't forget to check out his book, World of Goldeneye, available on Amazon.com. And with that, let's move from Argentina back to England and get the Tomorrow Never Dies PlayStation 1 thoughts from Chris, who is Instagram's British Bond addict. Bond. James Bond. Yeah, after having such great times with the Jewel when I was younger and my parents seeing how well me and my brother reacted to games consoles, Christmas of 1998, I want to say, they took the leap and bought us a PlayStation 1 and this was our first proper console. And my immediate thing was, is there a Bond game for this? Is there a Bond game? Because I played Goldeneye on my friend's N64 and had a whale of a time. Again, of an age where couldn't fully grasp quite how complex video games were, just going around different locations with a controller was quite fun in itself. But yeah, the first couple of games we got, one James Bond there, quite close, like a Tomb Raider game, which is almost James Bond in a way, until we went to Blockbuster. <laughs> Rest in peace. And we were looking through, and my dad always said, right, once a month, you get to rent a game, and if you really like it, we can have it later. And I picked up like Spyro, all this sort of stuff. And then one day, I spotted James Bond. Piers Brosnan, I knew, because he looked just like he did on the VHS cover, and his, it was him, and it's, Dad, it's James Bond, it's here, it's all right, I'm just the dad. And he went, okay, okay, cool, calm down, let's get it. So I picked it up straight away, went up to the cashier, I was like, this please, this please. My brother was still picking some F1 game, I was going, no, there's more important things to be had here. And then we went back, rushed home, and I was storming, like, holding my dad's hand, like, come on, let me go, let me go. And he's like, don't you want to eat lunch? And I was like, no, I just want to play the game. And he's like, no, have some lunch. And I was like, I don't want to eat my lunch. <laughs> I don't want Taramis Lash on toast, I just want to play the game. Let me play the game. So I sat down, opened up, and I remember the very first time playing it because it's got this huge kind of explosion at the start. This is Black Ops Entertainment and the music by Tommy Tallarico.
Tommy Tellerico Studios. And of course, for like, I think what must have been about seven at this point, that is just overdrive for me. That's it. Like, I'm sold. I'm in. That's it. Then it's got a nice little montage at the beginning, and it's like clips from the film and clips from the gameplay. And I'm going, wow, you can't tell the difference. <laughs> and then <laughs> the game starts, and that's it. You've got a cool picture of Piers Brosnan with a gun. Start game, 007, agent, whatever. I'm, I'm spamming age just so I can get there. And the first level, I can remember it because it's every level starts like a gun barrel opening up and it says all the time. And I'm going, what the hell does 1800 mean? Like eventually learned that was like a military time. And then I just played through the first level. And for days, I just didn't stop. Um, I don't know what it was. But when I was younger, if I enjoyed a video game, I'd play it, start again, play it, start again, play it. And I just wouldn't get bored. The first level itself in particular really sold me because it's got some really cool music when you get up to it. The Bond theme starts quite nicely and you start to know all the little tricks of the game. And for me, honestly, it was incredible. It was quite weird looking at a PlayStation review magazine that I got a couple of weeks later that is getting absolutely slated. And my head, I couldn't really understand why. But I ignored it and continued on. I didn't matter about the voice acting, which didn't sound like Piers Brosnan at all. I didn't matter that the animations were a little bit janky. All of it was just so well done. Like... I was kind of expecting a game like The Jewel, where it's just a shooter, but with a tuxedo. But the fact you had like gadgets, you had different kinds of guns, you had the ability to choose between the two, explosive environments, 3D modeling, skiing levels. Oh my God. The first time that skiing level popped up and then it comes up with the Union Jack parachute at the end. It sold me completely. Much to the stage that now I often like listening to video game music when I'm studying because lyrics get me distracted. Just having something in the background just keeps me focused. And the Tommy Tallarico Tomorrow Never Dies soundtrack is constantly there. I don't know why it's so good. It's obviously probably just a bit of nostalgia, but every piece of music's so different. There's only a few instances where a song's repeated. That's one of my main memories, actually. Like, if I think about it now, the first thing that pops into my mind is the music. I think about the boat level at the end. I think about the one level as Wei Lin. I think about the kind of janky car missions, which were a little bit bad, but I didn't mind because I was driving a car as James Bond. It wasn't until I got more into Bond, the franchise, that I listened to the Tomorrow Never Dies soundtrack. There's some places where it, the music's definitely been carried over. I've not done any research into it if Tommy Tallarico got some of the rights from um, David Arnold or anything, but there's some pieces of music which are very, very similar. But no, overall, the game was just a joy to play for me. It was doing James Bond things in the best way I'd experienced it. Goldeneye went completely out of my mind at that point because I hadn't played it for more than a couple of hours at a friend's house. And all the levels, there's a variety of like 15 levels, I think, which was enough to keep me entertained. You had, the, as I say, the skiing. It was just all brilliant. I absolutely loved it. I think that also set me up to be disappointed by Bond for the next couple of years until the PS2 era kind of properly kicked off. Because I just go back and play Tomorrow Never Dies all the time. Uh, I liked how the bad guys were shown. I like Carver. Carver had some great puns in that game. Beautifully delivered, obviously. But yeah, overall, it was just a fantastic game. I just couldn't stop playing it. Like, loved all of it. And that, ladies and gentlemen, closes out 1999. And that will also close out disc two of the Digital 007, a look back at James Bond in video games, the 90s. It's been quite a run. Lots of good games to include the classic GoldenEye on Nintendo 64. And of course, I want to thank all the people that made this disc possible. This list includes Joe Slepsky from the Gamefly commercials, who does our vocal intros. Of course, Joe November, who does our original music intro and outro. What an amazing song. And then all the wonderful people that gave up their time for interviews that include the Wizard of Ice, 
Pat, DJ Cristado Sampson from the Longbox Crusade Podcast Network, YouTube's SCXCR, Aaron Bossig from the Hungry Trilobite Podcast, John from At Not Perfected Yet, Chris from Instagram's British Bond Addict, Eric from Philly, Becca from the Do You Expect Us to Talk Podcast, GoldenEye Superfan Frank McNeely, Ezra Gallo, Phil from Manchester, Luis from Ivague, Colombia, and Nicholas Succinct, the author of The World of Goldeneye. You all made this possible, and I hope you've enjoyed Disc 2 of the Digital 007, a look back at James Bond and video games. I've been your host, Jared Albrecht, the yard sale artist, a.k.a. Death Probe, from the On Her Majesty's Secret Podcast Network. I look forward to bringing you Disc 3. Until then, once again, for your listening pleasure, I will play you in its entirety Joe November's track Smirsh LOL as our outro music. It's a good one, folks. Thank you, sir.